Hello and welcome to the Overly Animated Podcast, where we take animation seriously. We provide fan-oriented and analytic discussions on a variety of animated shows, movies, and anime, currently featuring Steven Universe, Star vs. the Forces of Evil, and Samurai Jack. I'm Justin Cummings, and today I'm joined by John McKenna. Hi, everybody. And Alex Bonilla. Hola! Uh, today, John, Alex, and I will be discussing the top five show universes. We've been doing a bit of top fives here lately because I'm in a top five mood because they're just they're fun podcasts. They're really enjoyable. We're gonna be talking about our favorite worlds of animated shows, and you can find this podcast and all our podcasts at overlyanimated.com or by searching overly animated on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. So. We're going to dive right in. I did not give any parameters on this. You can take this however you want. I hope there will be not a lot of overlap. I want a lot of discussion, a lot of different stuff. So let's kick it off with Alex. What was your number five? My number five was Star versus the Forces of Evil, actually. Uh, while there is half of it that I feel isn't very uh, calling uh, e- Echo Creek, for example, the main town that's kind of rather bland. When you go to the Muni side of the show, that part looks so lovely, and uh, it, there is a lot of, uh, of potential really to go into that universe. Whenever you go, we uh, an episode takes us there. You want you want to see more of it. You want to see more of the characters. For some reason, the episode where the uh, Buff Frog was wandering through the, uh, the Muni and found the cornfields and the the Mouse Castle, that particularly just gives me a bubbly feeling inside when, uh, when you get when you get to see that part of the show and also there are uh, those brief glimpses for example where tom lives in the underworld and also you have ludo's castle in season one that was also a, ve- a very uh, brooding atmosphere as well so that's my that's my number five it's always very fun to go to the other to the other dimensions of that show alex you're right star is wonderful it is a really interesting world, and I love the dimensional scissors and how, like, that leads... We can go anywhere, anytime. Right, right. And also with uh, Running with Scissors is another one that comes to mind because of the scissors. Uh, that one, you were able to just jump through a bunch of different dimensions in, ele- in, 11, in 11 minutes. And, like, just uh, jumping from one place to another, but, like, getting to see all the different details once you slow it down... It just it gives Star a lot more depth than what you'd consider from the normal Disney cartoon. I agree. Um, my number five is Codename Kids Next Door. I love this show. The atmosphere of this show built was so cool of this giant secret agency of kids fighting against the tyranny of adults and the costumed villains that were the adults of the show, from the Toilinator to Sticky Beard, on and on and on, Night Brace... Some really great characters, and so just the world this show built, because it started off, you know, we had Sector V, that was our group, number one through five, and that was just our group. Well, that was all we saw of the Codename Kids Next Door, and as the show built, we saw number 276, uh, 274, 326, I think, we saw all these characters uh, fleshed out as we got a sense of the global scale of uh, the agency. We saw the villains do the same thing. We eventually found out that not all teenagers are bad. There are some that are still part of the kids next door as undercover agents. Some even stay until adulthood. Then the finale reveals there's a galactic kids next door. And just the entire franchise kept building and building and building. 
And they stuck to their rules. They created the world, and they stuck to it. And for Cartoon Network at the time, with what was kind of just a gag show, that was unexpected. And they gave us some deep plot, some espionage, betrayals, and a lot of stuff I just never expected. So, what did, uh, hmm. if you've seen Code Kids Next Door, what did you think? And if not, John, are you ready for number five? Um, I have seen Codename Kids Next Door, and I must, it was, again, it was a good show. I get, I get what you're saying about how the vastness of the universe, it kind of reminded me of, like, every kid's sort of dream, where you, it's a treehouse, like, you have your friends in a treehouse, but you're really part of this secret organization. It's, like, one of the coolest, you know, things you want to pretend is real, and to see it on screen kind of makes sense. It's, like, it takes, it, basically, it's a fantastical version of every nine-year-old, eight-year-old kid's view of, of, of what their reality is. That the adults are always out to get you, the teens are out to get you, and senior citizens will randomly pop them out of nowhere. <laughs> so I really, I thought, I, I, I kind of like, I remember that show, I really liked it. The, the senior citizen uh, squad might have been one of my favorite groups that show introduced. Um, so, yeah. so brilliant. Um, do you have your number five, John? I do. And my number five is. I know it's a bit of a cop-out, but I am going to say The Simpsons, because it was sort of the first kind of, it was sort of the first real animated slice of life kind of cartoons, and you sort of saw how it was just this ordinary town, but each part of the town had its own, uh, had its own, had its own character. You had Moe's Tavern, you had the Barflies, you had Simpsons Home, the Nuclear Plant, the Quickie Mart, and when you, when you're in those different environments, you definitely got different character, you got different character feels, got different interactions, and it was really one of the best examples of put, of just having what is essentially just this normal town and having it be the setting for these great characters and, and, and letting that feed off their, and having the interactions feed off of each other. So, and that's why I had the Simpsons in the top five. And the fact it's gone on for over 30 years by now and it keeps that same feel no matter what town, whether it's Springfield or Boston or New York or Capital City. It, it really speaks a lot to how the storyboarders and the animators and the storytellers skill and ability. Nice. It is it's such an expansive world. I, I love the Rick and Morty gag they did. They did an episode where George Bush was their neighbor, Morty. And it's, it's so great. Uh, Alex, do you have your number four ready to go? Uh, yeah. My, the one I chose for number four was Avatar The Last Airbender. And I do like that one because it, it does have very... Uh, fits to um, neighborhoods, to, so to speak. You had the Water Tribe, very barren, but it was a very tight-knit community that we got introduced to in the first seasons. Then you move on to the Earth Kingdom, and you have just the the lavishness of Ba Sing Se and the, how, but also you can feel the the tension from the very beginning of a uh, uh, controlling society. And, just the, and also in the later seasons, when you get to the Fire Kingdom, at first on the outside and it gets built up so much as a very evil nation but then when you get inside you uh, the show allows us to see the citizens daily lives that they're really just a, nor- a normal people in in a certain sense so just the, the way that the show was able to portray all those different kingdoms but at the same time the similarities each community had w- between the nations it just uh, it it was a very peaceful universe to go to at, at cer- uh, in certain times. Uh, the Earth Kingdom is personally my uh, my favorite, but yeah, just um, having and all, uh, having the four nations uh, very defined, but at the same time you got to see them intertwine with each other throughout the series. Uh, that made it a, a very a good universe to always dive into. 
I don't want to go too in depth into it right now because I have it later on my list, but it it's Avatar. It's incredibly yeah. well built. It survived through two different series, the same world. It's just it's a beautiful, beautiful setting. My number four, I've got to go with the world of Pokemon. Yeah. I mean, it's partially nostalgia. Part of it's due to the video games, but this is just, it's a true world. We've seen like five, six, seven continents at this point in just the main games. And so it's, it's to me this beautiful, never ending world. And you have people who try to put it together on a planet and figure out how it all fits together. And it's so hard because this show doesn't want it to be like a planet. It wants it to be this just never ending expansive world. And I think that's really beautiful about it. Over 800 different creatures now, all completely made by the creators. It's, it's been going for over 20 years. And I think that's because it's fantastical and wonderful and nothing holds a candle to it as far as scope. And it's Pokemon. What? It's Pokemon. It's been going for over 20 years for a reason because it's Pokemon. It, even some of the movies begin with, it's the world of Pokemon. Like, you know what that means when they say it. So, John. Number four is Hey Arnold. And again, this is, this is, and this is a, this is, again, this is personal for me because Hey Arnold was the first cartoon that was set in an urban area. And I grew up in a city. I grew up in Boston all my life. I still live there now. So to see a, a, a world that wasn't fantastical or just like, Suburb or just general suburbia was new, was new and unique, and it had the feel of the a city that I would know, a city I grew up in, because they'd go to school on a public bus. Don't have that in suburbs. They have uh, Arnold's friends are all come from many different races, colors, creeds, which just like a city, he goes to a public school. It's under an overpass, and they play street and they play street ball. So which is street baseball and street hockey. So when you have, and again, sort of like how The Simpsons had. That setting stuff, different character interaction. This one allowed for stories, plots, and adventures to develop in a way that you can't get in a Simpsons-like setting. There, you, you meet the meet eccentric people like the Pigeon Man who lives on the roof of his house, of his house, and keeps pigeons and talks to them. You would have Stoop Kid who famously is afraid to leave his stoop. And you, and for me at least, I remember I would meet, I remember see, meeting those people growing up. There would be those kind of eccentric people. There would be the guy who. Yeah, like the guy who can always, uh, the guy who sits there and plays chess, who looks like a, cre- who looks creepy, but he's actually really friendly. And it's this, um, and when you have that, it's, for me, it just felt, it felt familiar in a way that no other show felt. And again, it lent itself to very unique urban centric stories, very unique, uh, character interactions, and the kind of characters that you don't, that you don't see in any other, in most kids' cartoons tend to be very, which at the time were very homogenous, very, stale suburban that kind of thing so for that i put hey arnold in the number four slot uh alex any comments on hey arnold and then on to number three well i just want to say that hey arnold he's right that it is uh, i'm trying to think of other cartoons that take place in cities and i feel like that is one of the first ones that has that kind of like brooklyn vibe almost as a kid i I only had sesame street really that that had that kind of atmosphere but he's right uh, that one is kind of a unique universe in terms of uh, cartoons of that era. Um, as to uh, my top, my number three ranking on, on the list, 
I have a Samurai Jack listed, but uh, specifically season five because I've only watched bits and pieces of the of the older version of it. But from what I've seen of season five of Samurai Jack so far, I've been very impressed with just how beautifully it's all drawn. Gendy Tartakovsky is uh, amazing at uh, the background design and the use of when to go full screen, when to uh, go uh, very uh, narrow. And also just the, the way he portrays nature, particularly in the earlier episodes, it's uh, very chilling at times, but also the use of silence that he uses allows you to immerse yourself in the, those uh, scenes. The one that I, I particularly remember very well is the one with, one with the lone wolf and how he gets uh, mauled by the the other wolves in the in the forest. But just uh, the use of, uh, or more the, the limited use of sound just allows you to be very immersed in that uh, in that universe and uh, even up to now the most recent episodes uh, ge- uh, getting to see for example ashi and uh, jack uh, wandering through the factory and you see all these little, little creatures the little uh, the little babies uh, getting uh, uh, con- mind controlled it just uh, it, it all works for me really and it just uh, makes makes me buy in even though i had only seen very little of the show beforehand it it is a beautiful, beautiful world, and definitely, I wrote about this way back when I first joined Overly Animated. I wrote about Jack as one of my top ten expansive worlds, because they introduced character after character after character, so rapid fire, and it never felt crowded. It always just felt bigger and bigger, and I think they did a really good job of that. Uh, my number three is the only anime to make my list, Log Horizon, which... I watched this when it first came out, which was right after season one of Sword Art Online, and I was okay with season one of SAO. It was fine to me, but it felt way too cop-out as far as the video game aspect. It, it felt like they were just kind of exploiting the idea of a video game. Log Horizon didn't do that. Log Horizon made its rules and stuck to it. They really dove into the mechanics of playing an MMO, the different roles in a group. You can't just run in with two swords and beat everything and be amazing. You need a team. You need a good team, and you need communication with your team. They fleshed out so many elements, such as if you used a cooking menu uh, to make food, it tastes bland. But if you actually cook the food by hand, if you have a high enough cooking level, it tastes wonderful. And so there was a multi-episode arc about a restaurant. And the idea that in this game, the NPC's language, uh, the word for 42 and the word for song is the same because the game's soundtrack is only 42 songs. And there were just all these little things that made the world so believable and so enthralling. And it didn't break its rules for a lot of Deus Ex Machinas. They created a world and then lived in the world for two seasons. And it was really fascinating to watch. I don't know if either of you two saw it, but it's just, it's refreshing to see an anime that can actually rely on its world instead of on bigger and more spectacular deus ex machinas at the end of every season. Uh, yeah, I have. I don't really watch anime, but the way you uh, way you described it does make me very interested in that that kind of a universe being inside an MMO. Oh, it's that does sound very interesting. Yeah, it's definitely one of the best done. Um, inside of video game worlds, because instead of, if you die in the game, you die in real life, it's, if you die in the game, you're fine, you go back to the cathedral and respawn like usual. If the NPCs die in the game, they're dead. And that became a big plot point in the back half of season one, and it, some people are like, it doesn't have the same stakes as Sword Art Online, but 
I think it was because they could die and they were able to explore, you know, what does what does death mean in a world where you can die a million times that it was able to do some really cool stuff. And so it's it's definitely up there. It's just a great universe that was created. Uh, John, what do you have at number three? Number three is the is Steven Universe, um, which I give cre- which I give it credit for because it ha- it is a they have multiple locations that they go to to fight demons and monsters. There's Homeworld, and then there's Beach City. But how? But it's not just that. It's how they're able to create a vast world and do all this world building with such a narrow point of view. It's just Steven's point of view. That's the whole point of the show. You don't see anything that Steven isn't seeing. And through that lens, which you think would be very constricting for plot, they're able to not only have a strong narrative, but also you get to see all these different facets of his life. You get because and each one is unique in its own way. Because Homeworld, you have their escapades with the diamonds, and in Beach City, you have him just being a, a normal human boy in a sense, solving normal human problems, albeit with some magic thrown in. And that's really I, I've always been waiting for that show to run out of gas and where they're going to have to go. Okay, we can't do this anymore. We have to break the rule because we can't because we're getting stuck. But they never. But that, that's still that that hasn't happened yet, which I've found really interesting because they've been able to keep keep it really well balanced. You'll have a long run of Beach City, then you'll get a little bit of Homeworld. You'll get the Gem Temple caves, and and mixing and blending. Mixing, being able to mix and blend that with tight plots, uh, good characters, and also, and also giving each region, keeping it its unique identity while still having that very narrow focus is a really good piece of TV show craftsmanship. And for that, I give it the number three slot for, because of both its, its universe, its settings, and how they're able to do it on such a very tight, narrow, uh, storytelling point of view. I agree. It's definitely an incredible feat. You gotta give the whole crew universe credit on that. They've they've done a lot with so little. Alex, uh, your thoughts on Steven Universe, and then on to your number two. Well, actually, this flows very well because Steven Universe is my number two. So, but uh, uh, yeah, John uh, articulated it very well. Just uh, seeing how uh, how well the, the universe does at, at giving you the right uh, right vibe in every place you go. Particularly Beach City, I have a personal connection to because uh, every year when we were little, we would go to those New Jersey uh, like New Jersey beach towns that feel very similar to the one we see in Beach City, having the boardwalk uh, maybe quieter than normal. Um, uh, traffic because we would always go on the off season, but just uh, f- getting to see Steven just interact with the with the townies. Uh, at least for me, I, I know in the fandom it's often a complaint whenever a townie episode happens, but I do like the idea of gr- of grounding Steven in the human in the human world. But then also because of that, it's a treat when we get to see him go into the ge- into the gem side of the world. Particularly when we go to home, uh, when we went to the zoo arc, for example, getting to see a piece of what Homeworld is actually like, and I guess the the head cannon helps with this, but just the idea of the potential that there is there in being able to see the Homeworld side of this universe, it makes it all, all the more worth watching. And also going back full circle to where we started, Empire City, what John mentioned in the very beginning, that is also very beautifully drawn, and you'll notice that with a lot of the different backgrounds we see in this show. Uh, Stephen Sugar, I think, is the one who is in charge of, of that part of the show. Uh, he does a great job 
in ma- making every, all the backgrounds very beautiful as well to watch and making the entire show just a very chill show. I'm actually really surprised I don't have Steven on this list, but it oh, is. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I can't believe I didn't put it. Like, honestly, I'm kicking myself, but you guys... You guys covered it very, very well, and we we know I like Steven Universe. I've been doing this job for how long now because of Steven Universe? But my number two is the other show I cannot seem to shut up about, and that is Total Drama. This show took a basic premise of, we're going to parody Survivor, and they kept it going. They had the first season on an island, then they went and did it on an abandoned film lot, then for season three they're like, you know what? Let's go all out. World tour. They went all over the globe for in just one season, going every country they could. Then they went back to the island, now infected with toxic waste, which was kind of jumping the shark, but you know what? It was fine. It gave us mutant shark Fang, who everyone loves Fang. Then they did another season with all stars, and then we did Redonkulous sorry, before Redonkulous Race, we did Packatoo Island, then we did a spin off of Amazing Race called Redonkulous Race. And it just, it kept going, and it kept building, and they created this just franchise of these different shows that are shows in their own show, and so it's always so fun to hear them break the fourth wall, because it does feel real. If it weren't animated, and for the fact of things such as the mutant shark, it feels like it could be real, and I think that's what gave the show a lot of its... Uh, a lot of its strength was the fact that you felt like this could be a reality show. You were concerned, like, who are they going to vote off this week? When you know it's been written months in advance, you know it's part of the plot, you know it's not real, but you're still invested. Uh, we talked in a different Top 5, John, about Alejandro, because he came in and he wrecked the entire formula, basically, of the show. You had... Heather was the the queen bee, and then Courtney was the main antagonist in season two, and then, because of Alejandro, they're both basically rendered harmless, because Alejandro was just that villainous. And whenever they show started feeling a bit stale, they could bring in new characters, they could really give it new life, and uh, it seems the spinoff is going to be the last season we ever get, and if it is, I'm glad it ended the way it did. Uh, the team that ended up winning the Amazing Race spinoff for Donkey's Race was Jeff and Brody. Jeff was a character from the first couple of seasons. Brody was a new character that was one of his friends from back home. And to see Jeff finally win, he came so close his first season, first eliminated in the second season. He had a whole arc of him kind of becoming his own TV show host. That I love that arc so, so much. And then to see what happened, to see him finally win a season even if it wasn't total drama to see him win they gave us this world that we cared about every single character and there was over 80 of them and i think that speaks volumes so john i know you haven't seen total drama alex i don't know if you have but if there's nothing more on to your number two john uh number two is the legend of Korra, and i didn't and I know that Avatar The Last Airbender was mentioned already, and I know that Korra was mentioned a little bit. I, only, I wanted Korra in there, and I did put I did put the Avatar worlds in there because I did want two, basically two versions of the same universe. I wanted to focus on just Korra from a number two because what is rare for Nickelodeon and what Korra did, ex- I think even better than The Last Airbender, was create a, a world and a universe that was 
as complex and as deep as it was. And focusing on, for example, we had Republic City, which which takes the form of a 1920s-style metropolis. Uh, there's cars, there's radios, and you see, and you see that the crew put effort into the political and social life of this city. It has a city council, but it's an all bender council. And when you go to, we go to the Earth Kingdom, there's still the Earth Queen. The Earth Queen is furious that Republic City was carved out of land that was seized from the Earth Kingdom during the Hundred Years' War and was never given back to them. We have the Northern and Southern Water Tribes that are now feuding. They're now feuding, and they're sort of quasi-independent, but then the North is trying to take over the South, I guess, uh, if I'm remembering too correctly. Um, and you have the Air Nomads now. They're getting back on their feet. It's still, you know, it's not many airbenders, at least until Book 3 there weren't that many airbenders. But, and you you saw that network coming back into life. And just the level of detail they went to is so impressive. And I'm watching this, and I'm watching this again. I'm a political science minor. I'm an economics major, so I look at these things almost from that lens first. I'm watching this going, wait a second, how is the Earth Queen not ticked off that that, that Republic City's carved out of that land? What happens in season two? We see her get ticked off. I Season one, you look at the city council and say, wait, if non-benders exist in this city, why are they not represented in their own government? Guess what? That's one of the main drives for the for the villain. And when you get to like that level of almost deep, sometimes it can get really boring, granular detail, or you just want to slide right by it. The show embraced it and made it part of the made it part of plots, side plots, character development. And when you have that mechanism working, it creates just a much fuller, more immersive, digestible, debatable show that you can just debate about for for hours on end. And that just that just makes that show that much better when you're in when the characters are in a society that's that deep and complex and has problems that mirror real world problems. It, it follows real world convention almost, which is both interesting and can be slightly depressing. And that's and that challenges the viewer in a way not many shows can. So that's why I have it as my number two. I, I we're still gonna get to it for me. I promise it's coming. It's it's obvious now that it's my number one, but we're, we're getting there because I combined them because I cheated, and we're not done yet. So, Alex, what is your number one show universe? Okay, my number one Adventure Time. Uh, I don't know why, but just uh, this show it, it's been lasting for so long, and yet I still just love it whenever a new ep- a new episode comes up. Getting to go back to the land of Ooh. It's uh, such a colorful place, and uh, for when we focus on the grasslands where Finn and Jake live, it's uh, pretty peaceful. But when you go to the Candy Kingdom, it's showing us all the different corners from, like, the seedy underbelly. You got the, the taverns that they hang out at sometimes, and then you got Princess Bubblegum's castle where everything's a lot more organized. And then you also get you get to go to the Fire Kingdom. We've seen, a ch- we've seen changes there from how it was originally when the Flame King was ruling to now... Flame Princess, it's gotten a lot more mellow, a lot more controlled. And then the Ice Kingdom is always fun, although that's mainly because of, of Ice King and the and the penguins. And then also just the, the way they're able to 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 maneuver it to change it in different ways. For example, when they have the guest animated episodes like Beyond the Grotto comes to mind, they are managed to make the the environment still very pleasing to look at even then. Or when they look into the future of uh, of Ooh or the past when we've seen the flashbacks. Just getting to see the uh, the environment evolve over time, the types of changes it makes, and then you get to pay attention to how that's happening in the present time. 
just so all of that just uh, really yeah, st- stimulates me whenever I watch it. And also that's why I'm kind of it's really excited for the uh, Elements miniseries. I think it just dropped uh, on iTunes, so, so I'll need to take a look at that. But just uh, getting to see more of just how subtle changes in how they they change around ooh across the time. It's just, it's just a lovely show that I, that I like to watch uh, when whenever whichever corner it decides to focus on. I need to get caught up. I have not seen much, if any, of season seven. I didn't see Islands. I I need to get caught up. I've fallen away. But the thing about the show is, it's not the overall series progression that I remember the most. It's episodes, like um the episode with Evergreen, where we see this flashback to why the Ice Crown has the power it does, like why that became cursed. Because we knew it was cursed, but to find out why it was cursed. And then that ending with Gunter No, Gunter No was just so powerful. And we have so many episodes like that. But this show also does such a good job at not, it, anything can happen. There's no boundary of reality to the point where, spoiler for the end of season six, I could go into school one day and my friend's like, what happened on Adventure Time? I missed it. And I could say, Gunter's a space god. And they're like, okay, cool. <laughs> and no one questions anything. That is, that's what this show can do. They have no boundary, and that what makes the universe so fantastical. Exactly, and also when you make when you make the mention of that in the past, it was more that just certain episodes just stood out. But I feel that now in season seven and eight, where they've taken more of a focus to the miniseries approach, and they've kind of gotten more um, more fits in, in plots rather than the character episodes. I feel. But that's helped to maybe focus more on developing the universe. So I would suggest you catch up, particularly if you're interested in in that side, like the evergreen side of it. It does go a lot more in depth into that in these pre, in these previous two seasons. And I'm spe- I'm expecting more information on that in the Elements miniseries as well. I want more evergreen. And to give, I love my baby. <laughs> and to, and and also to be fair, season seven I thought it's really easy viewing actually because it's uh it felt like a sort of lap of honor. Of the show because they touched on a lot of previous points, sort of updated them, kept it fresh. You got a little bit more character development. Not very plot heavy. I won't say it's the best season, but it was definitely one that made you appreciate how far the show has come in seven seasons. Yeah, and bravo to Adventure Time for still being on the air. Like, it survived the quick cancellation era of Cartoon Network because you had like Adventure Time and regular show began around the same time. And then you had Generator X popped up, that was gone. Secret Saturdays popped up, that was gone. Symbionic Titan popped up, that was gone. And just a lot of shows in that era only got very limited runs, but Adventure Time and Regular Show were constant for over half of this decade. And uh, to think Adventure Time might end soon is, honestly, it's the end of an era. Especially when you think about all the, um, especially when you think about just the roots that have created Adventure Time. Like, Rebecca Sugar went off to do Steven Universe. Pat McHale went off to do uh, Over the Garden Wall. Justin Roiland went off to do Rick and Morty. Its influence is everywhere. And it really would be the end of an era. A lot of people call Adventure Time the modern uh, SNL of the 70s, like, 70s SNL, where all the greats come through. No matter, like, no matter how long or short they're there, all the greats we're seeing today had some hand in Adventure Time at some point. And... It's not entirely true, but it holds pretty strong. Uh-huh. And I just want to give a quick shout-out to uh, talking about The Roots. 
Also, we have uh, Elizabeth Ito. She just released a short "Welcome to My Life" that was ve- uh, that was very mellow. And uh, also uh, Julia Pott, who's a, a writer for Adventure Time. I think she just got a series greenlit as well. Um, I forget the name. Uh, Summer Camp Island. So uh, also we're seeing that that's still happening today, and it's yet to be seen what happens to the other writers, what they do once uh, now that Adventure Time is finished up in a writing process. But I am excited to see what everybody else ends up doing. And it's, I'm going to miss Adventure Time. I'm really going to miss it. And with regular show already gone, it's like Cartoon Network is, it's almost done transitioning. We saw the start of the transition with Teen Titans Go. We're feeling it. The, the last couple of holdouts of that old style right now are te- um, Adventure Time and Steven Universe. And if we get Infinity Train, if we get, when we get OKKO, OK but it's, Adventure Time is going to kind of complete that transition, and we're going to see where Cartoon Network goes from there, but it's it's something special. Uh, my number one, obviously, is the world of Avatar, The Last Airbender, and The Legend of Korra, and the reason I combined them is not just to cheat, it's because this world is so well-constructed, we could jump, what, 70 years in the future, and still have the same world as deeply viewed without it feeling like a cheap, oh, we're going to the future kind of thing. It just feels like two eras of the same world that just progress naturally. It doesn't feel like a time skip. It doesn't feel like a time travel plot. It just feels like we're getting a view into two different generations. And the world just moved on its normal pace. The world evolved, the world changed, and none of the rules were really broken. Avatar has its rules, Korra has its rules, and we kind of see how we got from the Avatar world to the Korra world. And that's what I think is so, so great. Because to build that world once was tough enough. To change it enough that it's its own show without making it feel too different was a near-impossible task. But they did it. And we've talked about it a lot today, but this world is just so incredible, so in-depth. To see the politics of different nations and the ideology, and to especially see we talked about with Season 3 Fire Nation in Avatar, how just because there's an evil empire doesn't mean every citizen of that empire is evil. And I think that's a that's a really tough theme to address. We have a hard time seeing that in our world um, in... Even modern times, we have a hard time seeing that. That just because someone lives in a country that we don't agree with doesn't mean they're against us, right? They don't speak for their government all the time. And this show tackled that no problem because it had a world with the political complexity that it could do that. And so I think we all mentioned it in various forms, and I think it deserves to be mentioned in all its various forms. So let's end this strong. John, what is your number one pick? Uh, I have to agree with, I, I agreed with Alex and I said Adventure Time as well. Yes. I won't, I won't, I won't repeat what you said because I think you said it, I think you said it perfectly, but I will, I would also like to add just another, another example of the strength of the Adventure Time crew. They're able to have that vast, diverse world and they're able to keep so many parts going in motion without it seeing, without it getting too unwieldy. Because they could touch on, they could keep six different plot elements going on at once in various corners of the world. The Marceline Simon plot, the bubblegum, the bubblegum plot, the Finn and Jake plot. You have 
Finn and Flame Princess going at once. You had, and then you have room for these just completely random <laughs> side stories. Uh, my personal favorite was Root Beer Guy, um, where he's just living this very boring middle class life. Is a telemarketer, wants to be a captain, wants to be a police detective, winds up becoming captain of the Banana Guards through uh, a, a conceived plot to see how well the Banana Guards do at rescuing Princess Bubblegum, and of course they fail miserably. But just the way they're able to have this big world that they could constantly tap and keep coming back to without it seem, seeming too confusing or you got lost too easily or something that you 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 felt like you needed a book or a map to keep track of everything, as some shows tend to have happened. They get too big and they get too unwieldy. But the fact that they've been able to keep it going for for seven seasons, now going into eight seasons, have these different threads going, have all these different kingdoms with their own feels, tones, colors. It, yeah, it's, um, I don't think, it, for me at least, there was no, for me at least, and I guess for Alex too, it was an obvious number one. It, it it deserves to be number one, honestly, and I think Adventure Time and the Avatar World are, like, without a doubt, probably two of the best modern worlds we've seen in animation. Like, without a doubt. Like, they both deserve to be up here, and I think y'all hit the nail on the head with the Adventure Time World. I would love a map, not because I need it, but because this is the kind of show where I would enjoy pouring over a map of it. Like, it doesn't make... This isn't the kind of show where I feel like I need a map to understand what's happening. This is the kind of show where I want a map because I want more. And I think that's the key. And that's what Adventure Time does just so beautifully. So do you guys have any final thoughts before we sign off? Um, well, I just want to say that I had an uh, honorable mentions core. I didn't really d- discuss that very well but because you guys discussed it a lot more. But I do want to say that with Korra, I feel like that that universe was very intellectually stimulating. It, like John said, at times it was a bit hard because of the how deep the politics went. At times it wasn't as entertaining as I feel it could have been. But yeah, on an intellectual level, Korra was very well developed, and uh, it was a universe that did uh, did well in expanding what Avatar had had set in its foundations. And uh, also, just uh, with the map of Ooh, I believe there are some online that I'll, I'll probably send you one later. Thank but you. it is it is cool that they do uh, actually. It shows you a lot of locations that weren't shown in the show at the time, but they went to later. So it just gives you an idea of how actually well planned it is, despite how uh, how vast and how at, at times it looks disorganized. When in reality, they do have a, a, almost everything in in place in their in their minds when they're designing the episodes. That is a great point. And with that, because I can't say anything more articulate than that, uh, that is the end of this top five. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all the info on this podcast at OverlyAnimated.com. You can support us via Patreon at Patreon.com slash OverlyAnimated. Thank you to all of our current patrons, especially our patron of the podcast, Taylor, a.k.a. Needle. And thanks, as always, to our Patreon executive producers, John, Ryan, Steve, and Alex. John, thank you so much. You you, you do good work. Oh, and Alex, too. I forget you're both on here. I'm tired. Thank you (laughs) both for being executive producers. You're wonderful people. Um, Stay tuned, guys. We'll have tons of these top fives coming up, roundtables coming up, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Not sure when this is going to be out. Maybe Elements already happened. Maybe it didn't. We're covering it either way. So enjoy that. And thank you so much for listening, guys. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Take care.